For the past several weeks, we have been studying through 1 Peter. And as we continue this morning, the focus of our text is on suffering. When the subject of suffering is brought up, immediately the question rises in our mind, why does God, who is loving and powerful, allow suffering? Why would God allow a fumble on the one-yard line when you're just about to make a touchdown? Why do those things happen? Well, we know that much of our suffering is self-inflicted. We bring it upon ourselves. For instance, we know that we oftentimes have financial times of suffering because we spend more money than we make. In marriage, we know that we suffer sometimes in that relationship because we do stupid things. I know there have been two or three times in my marriage when I certainly have. I did hear about a man, who, woman, who were celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary, and so they were having a party for them, and, and uh, the, the, the husband kept referring to his wife as sweetie and honey and sugar and pumpkin and so forth. And so there was a man who was a guest there, and, and uh, so he was with the husband a little bit later, and he said, you know, I admire you so much. He said, after 60 years and, and you still refer to your wife in such endearing terms, I'm just so impressed with that. And he said, well, just between you and me, I forgot her name about ten years ago, and I'm, I'm scared to ask her what it is. And so sometimes we do things and forget things that cause our marriage to be a little bit difficult. We know that we suffer physically oftentimes because we don't listen to our doctors, because we don't eat right, because we don't exercise and do all those things. But ultimately, the reason that we suffer is because we live in a fallen world. And this world is under the curse of sin. For instance, we, we have watched on television the hurricane that came into the Gulf Coast and the people who suffered there. The Bible says that our world is under the curse of sin. And so as a result of that, ultimately, we have the issues of disease and death and disappointment and, and all of those things that come because we live in a fallen world. I think it's important, however, to know that suffering has purpose. The Bible says in Hebrews 12:11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, the truth is, our suffering can have a positive impact in our life. Philip Yancey wrote the book, Where is God When It Hurts? And he tells the story of Dr. Brand, who had given much of his life to the study of leprosy. And he discovered in his study that leprosy destroys the nerves, therefore they're there is no feeling within the nerves. And as a result of that, oftentimes, people hurt themselves and they are unaware that they are hurting themselves because they have no feeling. So Dr. Brand concluded that pain is a gift from God that alerts us when we are hurting ourselves. None of us likes to suffer. I want unbridled prosperity, and I can do without the suffering. But the fact is, oftentimes we learn more through times of suffering than we do through times of prosperity. Suffering, for instance, changes us. Through the years, I have known so many believers, people that I have pastored, people that I know, some of you. 
And you have gone through times of suffering, and I've watched that, and others have watched as well. And I've seen how God has changed you as you have gone through those. How you have become stronger in the faith, more committed to the Lord as a result of it. And so we know that that suffering can change us and suffering shapes our life. As we are put in that oven of suffering, it shapes our life and makes us something else. For instance, the Apostle Paul said that he had a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what that thorn was, but three times he went to the Lord asking for its removal. And God said, I'm not going to remove it. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says that it is in my weakness that I'm strong. He said, so I will glory, therefore, in my weaknesses, because in my times of weakness, God is strong in my life. David Suffered, and as a result, he became an instrument that was honed for the purposes of God. And you and I go through suffering as well, and God wants to use suffering in your life and my life to conform us to the image of Jesus. So, take your Bibles today as we pick up where we left off last time. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse number 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter begins here by mentioning the fiery ordeal in verse number 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Now, most of the time when that word is used, it is a reference to metal that is being refined by going through the fire. But Peter is saying that we also face the fiery ordeals in life. We also face those times of refining within us. Barclay says that it is inevitable that we are going to go through times of the fiery ordeal because we are different. He said, it is Peter's view that persecution is inevitable. It is human nature to dislike and to regard with suspicion Anyone who is different. The Christian is necessarily different from the man of the world. Now, the point that he is making is that we are going to have times in our life when we are suffering because we are different. For instance, look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar erected the golden idol and told everyone to bow down to the idol, and all did except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were different. Because they were different, because they did not do what everyone else did, they were placed in the burning, fiery furnace. Look at Jeremiah, the prophet. 
Jeremiah the prophet was preaching a message of judgment when everyone else was preaching a message of peace and prosperity. And so as a result of his difference, his message was different. And as a result, he was persecuted, placed in a cistern, in prison, all because his message was a different message. And ladies and gentlemen, the word different means holy. And because you and I are to be different, because we are to be holy, then we should expect that there are going to be times when we too suffer. In fact, Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you know that since the crucifixion of Christ, there have been 26 million Christians martyred because of their faith? That there are between 150,000 and 165,000 Christians who are martyred each year because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You, you see, Peter is saying that it is inevitable in a sense that if we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, that there is going to be suffering because we are different. We're different from the world. He goes on to say that in a sense that our suffering is a test in verse number 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, we know that in sports that there is practice and so forth to see which player is ready. We know that within the Christian life that sometimes we go through trials and suffering in our life to reveal to us the condition of our faith. Is our faith where it ought to be? And it is revealed to us during times of suffering. Now, having said that, granted, when we go through times of suffering, it can be confusing to us. It was to David. In the 73rd Psalm, David looked around and saw the suffering of godly people, and he saw the prosperity of wicked people, and he was confused by it. And so in Psalm 73, 13 and 14, he said, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. David was confused by the suffering of the people of God. And it normally confuses us as well when we see it. Peter was confused somewhat when he heard Jesus talking about dying on the cross. And Peter said, not so, Lord, this cannot happen to you. Why should it happen to Jesus? So suffering is confusing to us, and yet it is a necessary testing of our faith. Do you want to know the condition of your faith? Then you go through a difficult time. When one goes through times of suffering, times of difficulty, then the condition of our faith is revealed to us. He goes on to say that suffering shares with Christ in verse number 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. He says, as we suffer, we identify it with his death. Folks, when you are going through times of suffering, you are identifying with the death of Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So understand when you go through times of suffering that you are identifying in a sense with his death. You also identify with his glory when you go through suffering. Romans 8.17 says, If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Harper's commentary said, Nor does the glorification which suffering brings belong to the distant future. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed here and now. When you and I suffer for the cause of Christ, the Bible says we are identifying with his death and we are identifying with his glory. So Peter mentions the fiery ordeal. Suffering is inevitable because we're different. In a sense, it is a testing and it is a sharing with Christ. And yet he goes on to say, but keep on rejoicing. Verse number 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Well, how can we do that? I don't know how you respond to suffering, but my natural inclination is not to keep on rejoicing. He says, when you suffer with Christ, we keep on rejoicing. How can we do that? He says, because the spirit of glory rests on us. Look at verse number 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, that sounds spiritual to me. I read that several times. It sounds spiritual to me. That when I suffer, keep on rejoicing because the spirit of glory rests on me. What does that mean? Well, it's an obvious reference to Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, the Bible says that the glory of God was on the mountain. The scripture says in Exodus 24:17, And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. All right, so Moses then went up on the mountain to meet with God, and the Bible says that the glory of God covered the mountain. And then God took the glory and he put it on Moses. And Moses' face would shine as a result of the glory of God. So the scripture says in Exodus 34, 35, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with them. So the, the glory of God was so strongly on Moses that he had to put a veil over his face because his face was shining. The Bible says the spirit of glory filled the tabernacle when it was dedicated in Exodus 40:34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Bible says that the spirit of glory filled the temple in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And it came about when the priest came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. My goodness, I read that. I said, Lord, would your glory so fill this place that we couldn't sing and we couldn't preach? We just glory in you. That's what happened in the temple. The glory of the Lord so filled the place where they were that they could say nothing. They could see nothing other than God and his glory. 
Rejoice, because the glory of the Lord rests upon you. I think what Peter is saying is when we suffer for the cause of Christ, the glory of the Lord rests upon us then. I think that's exactly what happened when Stephen was executed, stoned to death. Because the Bible says in Acts 6.15, and fixing their gaze on him, Stephen, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. When Stephen was being stoned to death because of his face in Christ, the Bible says that his face looked like the face of an angel. I don't think Paul ever got over that. In fact, I think that was always in Paul's mind. And probably one of the things that brought him to faith in Christ, because he could not get past that. He saw Stephen die. And as Stephen was being stoned, the glory of the Lord rested upon him. And that's what Peter is saying about you and me. Whenever we suffer in the name of Christ, when we suffer for the cause of Christ, he says, the glory of the Lord rests on you, so rejoice. Haven't you noticed that when some of our members who are godly people, they love the Lord, and they go through trying times, they go through trials, and there's just something about them. You look at them and think, my goodness, what is it? It's the glory of God. The glory of God that rests upon them. Rejoice when you go through times of suffering and trial. Because he says, the glory of the Lord rests on you. There is a warning in verse 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. He said, we are to rejoice in righteous suffering but not sinful suffering. A murderer? Now, surely he can't mean that. People of God, murderer. And yet it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that one of the believers was living an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. A thief, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. But we know what these other words mean, but what does it mean, a troublesome meddler? Actually, it's two words, which mean belonging to another and looking upon or looking into. Literally, it means looking upon or into that which belongs to another. There are three possible interpretations of that. First of all, it could mean covetous. It could be referring to someone who looks at what someone else has and covets what they have. It could mean covetous. That's what Calvin thought that it meant. That was his interpretation of it. It could be a reference to a, a busybody. In the South, you'd refer to them as a nosy person. Someone who wants to know things about you that's really none of their business so that they might know the news. Someone said the difference between gossip and news is whether you hear it or tell it. Franklin Jones says not everyone repeats gossip. Some improve it. So that's one possible meaning. It could mean someone who is too interested in other people's business. Third, it could refer to unchristlike behavior. The word means that which belongs to someone else. Some have interpreted that to mean that which is foreign to oneself. And with that interpretation, it would mean a Christian engaged in things that are not proper for a Christian. 
It should be foreign to a Christian. Behavior that is not proper or foreign to a Christian. One commentator said this would mean that a Christian must never interest himself in things which are alien to the life that a Christian should lead. Now, folks, if, if we are children of God, and this is one of the things that is very disturbing to me, concerning to me, that when I see the studies that are done, and I repeatedly read that there is very little difference between someone who says that they are a Christian and someone who does not claim to be a Christian, very little difference in their life, that probably is what that is referring to. Let me just say to you, if the world is doing it, if it's accepted by the world, you probably ought not. Because we are not to be engaged in those things that should be foreign to a Christian, that should be foreign to the way of life that Christ has led us to. Keep on rejoicing when you suffer because the spirit of glory rests on you. And then he reminds us to do right because judgment is about to begin in verse number 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter says that the judgment of God is about to begin, and when it does, it always begins with the people of God. When judgment comes, it always begins with God's own people. Ezekiel 9.6 says, Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Judgment always begins with the people of God. Always has. Judgment always begins with the church. We refer to Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. But God always puts the onus on his people. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we want the world to be different. We want the world to be righteous. We want our state to be, to be righteous. We want our nation to be righteous. But it always begins with the people of God. You see, I don't fault those who are lost for the condition of the world because I understand it to be something that a responsibility that has been given to the church. So he says judgment always begins with the church. It begins there, but it does not end there. Verse number 17 again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So he says that if it is bad for us, the judgment of God is bad for us. How much worse will it be for the unbeliever? Harper's commentary said, if God's elect have to pass through such hazards and trials... The reflection that should stiffen their resolution and redouble their courage is that words cannot describe the irreparable fate awaiting the impious and sinful. So he's talking about the judgment here. He says the judgment of God is coming. He said it always begins with the house of God. And so he says, therefore, entrust your souls to God. Verse number 19. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entreat 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Uh, no matter what we face, we trust ourselves to God. The word entrust that is used there. And in the ancient world, in, in uh, Peter's world, they did not have banks. And so when someone was going on a trip, they would take their valuables, their treasures, and they would leave with a trusted friend because there was nowhere else to store them. And so what he is saying is that we entrust our souls to God. Our souls are entrusted to him, who is the faithful creator. You know, that is interesting because I just learned that the word creator that is used there is only used this one time in the New Testament. Only once in the New Testament is God referred to as creator. But it is here. Why? Big said the title may have been chosen here because it involves power, which is able, and love, which is willing to guard his creatures. Paul said something similar. We sang it earlier in 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Peter is saying that judgment is coming. It begins with the people of God, but it does not end there. He says, therefore, as the people of God, we are to entrust our souls to God. We can trust him with our soul. We can trust him with our security because he is the creator who is able and willing to guard us. So what do you do when suffering comes to you? When trials and difficulties come to you, what do you do? Well, folks, don't waste them. When trials come, don't waste them. He says, first of all, don't think it's strange. In verse number 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you. Don't think it's strange when suffering comes because the, what Peter is teaching us, that we are different because we are the people of God and because we are different and we live differently and our philosophy is different and we see the world differently. He says, don't be surprised when you are persecuted. Don't be surprised. He said, rejoice in suffering. Why? Because the Spirit of God rests on you. The glory of God rests on you. Folks, you just look around and think of those people you know who are godly people and they're going through trials, they're going through suffering, and there's something different about them. There's something different. What is it? The Spirit of glory rests on them. God's Glory rests on those people. God purifies us through suffering. When we go through suffering, it is a time of purifying. It is a fiery ordeal. It purifies us. And keep doing good and trusting God. Because you can entrust your soul to Him. Our Father, we come to you as we um, have studied this passage of Scripture Desiring to respond to trials and tribulations in our life in a way that is correct. I pray, Father, even now for those who are going through times of suffering that you would bless them, that the spirit of glory would rest upon them and that they would rejoice because of that. Father, we especially pray for those who face trials without you, who have never come to know Christ, that today they might trust Jesus. 
Bless this time of invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we'll stand, the choir will sing. We extend the invitation of the Lord to you. If you're here without Christ, He's calling you today to trust Him. Entrust your soul to Him. There'll be staff members here to pray with you and talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. You come. I'll greet you as you do. Stand with me, please. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you.